This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWRA. Greetings listeners, this is Darren Lim here and I am delighted to be introducing this special edition of the Australia in the World podcast in which we are partnering with the ANU's College of Asia and the Pacific and the ANU's Australian Studies Institute to present to you a recording of a live event at which my co-host, Alan Gingell, moderated a panel discussion on the topic Towards Reinvigorating Australian Foreign Policy Studies. It was held on Thursday 14 March on campus here at the ANU the panel contained three distinguished guests. First was Professor Valerie M. Hudson, the Vice-Chancellor's Australia in the World Visiting Fellow at the ANU. Professor Hudson is visiting from the Bush School of Government at Texas A&M University and is one of the world's leading scholars of foreign policy analysis. I note that while the Vice-Chancellor's Visiting Fellowship shares a title with this podcast, we are not otherwise connected. Also on the panel were Mark Kenny, Senior Fellow at the ANU Australian Studies Institute and former Fairfax journalist, and Professor Jackie True, another world-renowned scholar of international relations based at Monash University. It was a fantastic discussion, including great audience questions, and I regret not being able to be there myself in person, though I am very glad, like you, to have the opportunity to listen in. I want to thank the ANU's College of Asia and the Pacific and Australian Studies Institute for hosting this event, and Martin Pierce of the Crawford School for his production and editing support. And with that, dear listeners, enjoy the recording and look out for the next episode of the Australia in the World podcast in your feeds very soon. We are here to record a very special edition of Alan Gingell's Australia in the World podcast with three of our uh, most important uh, panellists and discussants from today. Um, and so I'll hand over to Alan uh, to take, uh, take charge of proceedings. Thanks, Alan. Well, thanks very much, um, Michael. I'm Alan Gingell. I'm National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs and an honorary professor here at the ANU's College of Asia and the Pacific. And as uh, Michael said, I'm also co-presenter with uh, Darren Lim from the Department of International Relations at the College of uh, Arts and Social Sciences here at the ANU of a uh, podcast called Australia in the World in which uh, Darren, who um, who is a young academic, um, and I, who am an ageing practitioner, uh, discuss, the, uh, discuss uh, the current issues of, uh, of Australia and its engagement with the outside world. Uh, we do this for the Australian Institute of International Affairs, which is, um, for 90 years now, has been committed to uh, informing and deepening the understanding of foreign policy in uh, in Australia. Uh, we have branches in every state uh, capital, uh, but we also have an interest in the academic dimensions too, because we are the publishers of the one of the leading uh, journals uh, in, in the field, the Australian Journal of International Affairs and uh, the series of histories, Australia in the World, which has now been uh, going on since just after the Second World War. So it was a great pleasure to be invited by the ANU uh, Australian Studies Institute uh, 
uh, and by Michael to host this special episode after the day-long Australian Foreign Policy Studies Forum. Now, as someone who from the age of 16, I think, uh, has never been able to think of anything more interesting, well, um, more professionally interesting anyway, than, uh, than Australian foreign policy, it always astonishes me that, that there are not other people, lots of other people around who, uh, who share my own view. But, um, uh, so for, for that reason, it was, uh, uh, really, uh, really wonderful to have this opportunity uh, to join a group of scholars to talk about uh, how to reinvigorate uh, the study of Australian foreign policy at this very exciting time. Uh, and, and it is indeed. Um, every Australian government uh, since the Second World War has at some point or another put out a paper or a speech or a... Or, um, uh, a, a policy document saying that uh, Australia has never encountered more uh, more fluid and uncertain times. Uh, you can Michael and I, I think, uh, went went through these in uh, a book we wrote some years ago on making Australian foreign policy. But I have come to the reluctant conclusion that these are indeed fluid and uncertain <laughs> times, unlike any that we've uh, we've seen before. Th seen before. Uh, foreign policy, of course, is uh, uh, an essential part of statecraft. It's the part of statecraft that deals with uh, the external environment and works out how to how to uh, manage uh, differences between uh, parts of the international uh, system. How do we how do we advance our interests, uh, the values we believe in, and the norms we support? So my view, anyway, is that the time for foreign policy has uh, come again. For the 90, through the 1990s, we went through a period where geoeconomics and uh, was the uh, was the sort of uh, dominating thread of discussion around the uh, the world. Then we had the the national security uh, decade at the beginning beginning of the 21st century, where where we all started to um, uh, to uh, to reconsider what we meant by national security security and how we managed it, but now I think the world we are in is one where the traditional um, uh, focus of foreign policy on reciprocity, on negotiation, on uh, on uh, dealing with uh, with uh, with uh, others in complex ways uh, will come into its own. So we've got a fantastic um, panel of people in the uh, in the audience with us. Uh, I was going to go, I was going to go to Michael first, but uh, he doesn't have he doesn't have a microphone. Can we? Um, yeah, I'll get. <clears throat> yeah, why don't you you grab a microphone? So um, uh, Michael, of course, is the Professor of International Affairs and Dean of the College of Asia and the Pacific here at the ANU and a very old um, friend and colleague of uh, mine. And I, I thought it was important, Michael, to start off first by, uh, uh, by asking you, what are we talking about? What are foreign policy studies? Well, foreign policy studies can be uh, defined either formally or, I think, informally, Alan. Um, 
Valerie, uh, our very distinguished visitor from um, Texas A&M University, has just published a, a, a wonderful book um, encapsulating uh, the development of foreign policy analysis as a sub-discipline of international relations um, in the United States and elsewhere um, since the uh, 1950s. Um, that would be what I would call the, the, the kind of formal body of, of what foreign policy analyses is, uh, the, 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 the techniques, the, the focuses, the methodologies uh, that is used. Um, but I think what I would suggest uh, is interesting and perhaps unique about foreign policy analyses in Australia is that it has um, developed uh, probably a little bit later from foreign policy analysis in the United States, but developed along its own fairly anarchic path. Um, I think most of those uh, in the discussion that we had today would say that uh, scholars have been analysing Australian foreign policy in Australia for many decades now without much formal reference to the formal body of uh, concepts, theories and methodologies uh, that has developed in North America and elsewhere. So it gives us the study of Australian foreign policy a rich vibrancy but also an anarchy uh, that is, uh, is exciting uh, and interesting uh, but does make it relatively marginal to the broader discussion of foreign policy in other countries and, and international relations generally. We had a discussion around why it's so difficult for someone who's, who's written an article on Australian foreign policy to actually get it published outside of Australia in one of the big international relations journals. Um, but uh, there's also another issue that I, I think we need to address, which is the fact that there are all of these really interested um, scholars of Australian foreign policy, but they don't really talk to each other in, in that they don't dialogue with each other in the journals, they don't debate each other, they don't use each other's theoretical concepts and departures. And I think that, you know, if, if we are really going to move to the next stage of Australian foreign policy analysis, that's some of the stuff that needs to happen. Great. Well, we're very lucky to have here in the room with us Professor Valerie uh, Hudson, who is one of the world's uh, leading um, <clears throat> proponents of um, foreign policy analysis. Valerie is professor at the, um, at the um, Bush School of uh, Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University, and she directs there the program on women, peace and security. She's done lots and lots of um, of other things, but but if you ask anyone around, um, you know who's the leading one of, for the leading figures in foreign in the field of foreign policy analysis, Valerie's name is very close to the top. So, um, Valerie, could you talk a bit more about what foreign policy analysis uh, is as a as a, a discipline, how it um, you know how it differs from, uh, from the traditional ways in which international security and international relations have been taught at universities. I'd be delighted to do so, Alan. Um, as Michael mentioned, um, foreign policy analysis emerged as a subfield of international relations in the late 1950s and early 1960s in the United States. 
And it emerged as actually pushback against the dominant international relations theories of the time. Uh, during that time period was um, fairly cold uh, time period during the Cold War, uh, in which the strictures of bipolarity seemed to dictate almost uh, a game of checkers or billiards, that you really didn't know very much, need to know very much about the players, uh, that in fact the board and where the, uh, the balls on the uh, board were, um, were, were really what was important. Um, and I think even then, during the coldest, one of the coldest periods of the Cold War, people knew that there was more to foreign policy than that. Um, but the, the dominant models were very, very actor general, uh, very much black boxing um, what was going on with inside, inside the nation, looking at it as really a chess match or a billiard match um, between the Soviet Union and the United States. I think where foreign policy analysis really came into its own was actually um, after the, the fall of uh, the Soviet Union. Um, I think you know that historian John Lewis Gaddis uh, took international relations as a field to task for uh, being blindsided by this. Um, but it is also true that people who were in the field of foreign policy analysis had been looking at these signs and well knew that something was afoot. So what is foreign policy analysis? Foreign policy analysis is fundamentally the study of foreign policy decision-making and implementation. As such, it foregrounds the human actors. Uh, so we would be looking at levels of analysis, such as the personality of world leaders. And then what happens when you get a small group, the inner circle, that's making the highest level foreign policy in the highest stakes situation? How about those group, uh, small group dynamics and how they affect the outcome? Uh, we would also be looking at uh, the behavior of large organizations. So for example, um, the US Defense Department has almost two million personnel. When they're given an executive order by the president and his small inner circle, um, how does that organization actually implement that? And how does that actually change in, in many senses what was decided? Uh, and then there's how the sausage is made, which is bureaucratic politics, which is usually there is not simply one organization within the executive branch uh, that is implementing foreign policy, but there are many. And there are many bureaucratic actors, and they are worried about their turf and others encroaching on their turf and budgeting and relative budgeting between uh, their rivals within the bureaucracy. Uh, extending even further, the bureaucracy is embedded, as is the executive branch, in a larger landscape of domestic politics where political contestation may actually constrain or embolden certain views of foreign policy uh, that you may not, uh, may not have emerged uh, without those kinds of political incentives. And oftentimes foreign policy is done as a deal. Right, you support me on this, I'll support you on that. Uh, or change this and that, and I'll, I'll be able to get it through uh, Congress for you. Um, those kinds of uh, political machinations, I suggest, are some of the most fascinating elements of foreign policy. Uh, and then, of course, culture. Um, the United States has a very definite culture, uh, as does Australia. 
Uh, I was uh, just at the Australian War Memorial last week, and certainly um, the sense of Australian as an Anzac nation and what that meant for foreign policy, I think, uh, is very important. Uh, just about a year ago, I was actually in the United States talking about culture and foreign policy to a group of senior level uh, diplomats, and they actually got into a discussion amongst themselves about which Marvel superhero the United States was at the current time period. Um, the first uh, gentleman who led off says, it's clearly the Hulk, right? We get angry, we go out and smash things, and then we wake up in a daze in a barn somewhere with our pants ripped and we're not sure what happened or how we even got there. Uh, and then another gentleman was arguing, of course, for Captain America, right? Uh, and then the third one said, oh, you're both wrong. It's clear that we're Iron Man, right? We are uh, very much reliant on our technology. We think of ourselves as good people, but we've had such bad experiences that we now have post-traumatic stress <laughs> and uh, we're, we're simply now ambivalent and uncertain where to go. But I think, uh, you know, we all laugh, but we all relate, don't we? Right? Where we're thinking, what kind of foreign policy should America have? We actually start thinking about who America is. And I'm sure it's the same in Australia. Now, this is not to say that foreign policy analysis would ignore a larger international forces or anarchy or the distribution of power capabilities over the units in the system. Absolutely, those things matter. But I think all of you know that you can make several different decisions based upon how you perceive that environment and those domestic forces, the personality forces, culture forces, bureaucratic forces that are um, at work. So certainly at this critical moment, as Alan put it, in Australian foreign policy, it matters, right? Who's making your foreign policy, right? It matters what bureaucracies uh, are, are in charge of certain elements of your foreign policy. It matters what your domestic political situation looks like. All of that is going to matter for the critical choices that Australia makes. So I think what foreign policy analysis adds, Alan, is a way of seeing right, what is normally unseen. To see the levers of influence and to see uh, the levers of, of, uh, of even um, thinking. Uh, someone today talked about the cognitive battlefield. To see these things in action dynamically, I think, is what the, the lenses and the methods of the subfield of foreign policy analysis adds to the study of Australian foreign policy. Fantastic. Thanks for that. Now, we've also got with us on the panel Professor Jackie True, uh, from um, Monash University, <clears throat> Department um, uh, uh, Professor of Polit Politics and International Relations. And Jackie is a specialist in gender and international relations. But I wanted to talk to you, um, basically, Jackie, about the um, uh, way in which academic work on foreign policy is being conducted in Australia now. Michael uh, Wesley, at the beginning of our discussions uh, this morning, said that there was a, um, uh, that, that uh, foreign policy studies was regarded in some quarters as being uh, too close to think tanks to be respectable. Um, is, uh, um, 
uh, how, uh, what, are, what are the issues that, that academics need to work on in this area? Great. Th thanks, uh, Alan. Um, I think, and also one of the issues that was raised today, especially in, with Valerie here and, and speaking about the comparison with the US, was that in the United States context, a lot of academics in the international relations field have actually served in US government as, as really in high level positions. Um, so some of our major scholars in the field, you know, Kissinger, Morgenthau, um, even, you know, Madeleine Albright, Condoleezza Rice. I mean, these are, um, Joe Nye. These have been, these are academics who have, you know, then taken on executive positions in government. So, um, and not to say that all academics have that kind of access to government, but certainly those, you know, those who are, you know, tasked with kind of conceptual thinking have also been able to implement some of that conceptual thinking in government. Um, and I guess in the contemporary period, we've had a lot less of that in Australia. And today in the workshop, a number of people kind of raised concerns about um, the lack of access um, to Australian government, the fact that it takes six months to get security clearance, so that even if you wanted to spend time in a government department or have your doctoral students spend time there, that would be very difficult. Um, so, th so I think there are some challenges, challenges there, but clearly at the same time, I mean, you have obviously in Canberra, you have a bit of a, um, a bubble, might I say, not being in Canberra. So you have that, you know, kind of a access and, and, and you have all these, I'm sure you could be out every night of the week. Mixing, you know, with the holy polloi and everyone else. It's a total party the whole on, time. On foreign policy, um, we don't we don't have the luxury of that in Melbourne, but fortunately we have other kind of culture. Um, <laughs> but in any case, I think you know, I think the uh, the onus is on really on us as academics as well um, to kind of um, to connect ourselves, you know, more closely with policy conversations. I mean, there is a bit of a model of that at, at the ANU. I mean, you have the Asia Pacific Policy Forum as a blog, but you also have the think tanks. And I think, I mean, for me, I mean, one of the things I emphasise today, and, and this is both in terms of analysing foreign policy and also trying to shape it, because I think academics have can use their knowledge and understanding of how foreign policy works, and they can actually be influencers at the same time. And for me, certainly in my research, that's very important. If you're working in an area where, where you see, you really want to see your government um, have a much more significant role in the world, um, then, then you have already an incentive, a normative incentive to push that. So um, some of the things we talked about today, and I, I, I think it's actually, you know, really uh, immersing yourself in a network, like being part of the expert network, connecting directly. And I think Alan Beam encouraged us, you know, to really reach out, to call up uh, key people in government, to be persistent, to actually publish and disseminate and write in accessible ways so that more people can actually, you know, have the, you know, have the advantage of your perspective and your research. Um, and that that need not come at a cost of, you know, publishing in the high quality journals like, for example, foreign policy analysis, the, the US journal devoted to the field. So, um, it is possible to do both and it is possible for us to also train and encourage our students to do both. Um, and I just gave the example, um, to Valerie actually that last week, having all the events now around International Women's Day and 
that being quite important for Australian foreign policy, um, because Australia being a strong advocate and champion worldwide for gender equality and the empowerment of women within its foreign policy had a number of events around the world as well. So I was able to publish short pieces with PhD students one on, on, on the importance uh, in the Pacific, on, on, on taking a gendered perspective on climate change, and one on a really topical issue at the moment, um, the uh, return of ISIS-affiliated people uh, who are currently in the Kurdish areas there, and many of whom are women and children, uh, some of whom may have been fighters, um, but many of whom are also kind of have experienced violence uh, as victims as well. So, you know, in that case, I think there is, there are lots of opportunities for us to, to actually try to be much more active, not only in interpreting Australian foreign policy, but actually actively seeking to bring our knowledge so that it can have an influence on that agenda. Yeah, thanks for that. Now, we've, we've also got with us, um, Mark Kenny, who, uh, came to the Australian National University recently after a, a long career in um, uh, in uh, journalism as chief political correspondent and national affairs editor of the Sydney Morning, The Age, and the Canberra Times, and many of us here will have seen him on uh, on the ABC Insiders um, program. Uh, Mark, I, I began by saying that um, I couldn't imagine that there were people in Australia who weren't as fascinated by foreign policy as I was. But I was going to say at that you're time, here to, Alan, you're here to, to ground us. So. I was going to say at that time, I was thinking of something else when I was 16, uh, to, be, to be frank. Uh, but it's true, uh, uh, we do eventually uh, take on those more worldly concerns, I think. Uh, you obviously just got there a bit before the rest of us, but uh, hopefully we do become um, interested in the world around us much more. And that's really what foreign policy scholars are uh, are doing their work for. If that weren't the case, I guess there wouldn't be any point. Uh, so really, it's about um, understanding the the how power works in our society, how power works internationally, what our governments do on our behalf. As Valerie said, you know the things that are happening um, in in closed rooms, behind closed doors, and so forth are are, are very interesting and um, and they're very instructive as to the outcomes that we end up with. Um, just going to something Valerie said about uh, cartoon characters, I, I was uh, I was thinking about you know where Australia sits there, and uh, I thought, well, you know, we, we're looking at the US and and the UK at the moment, and thinking they're more like Ren and Stimpy. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way things are uh, completely out of control in both places in their in their polities, it's a uh, uh, it's a bit of a worry. And of course, they are our lodestars uh, in terms of uh, uh, foreign policy and. Um, uh, I guess our, our sort of cultural touchstones as well in so many ways. We have our own culture, as Valerie uh, very generously pointed out, um, but we are nonetheless, um, you know, very, very much drawn from those traditions in terms of our language and our, uh, a lot of our values and certainly our, um, you know, our, what we, what we like to think of as our, our high functioning democracy. Ours actually is high functioning at the moment compared to the way they're running things. So, um, uh, you know, the, these are all very important matters and I think uh, will continue to be. They, they're getting more important as things get more turbulent. Um, Jackie talked about the uh, Canberra bubble um, <laughs> uh, before. Out, That's out, a pejorative that the Prime Minister yeah. loves to use at the moment to <coughs> um, discount any sort of uh, scrutiny of what's going on. Do you know on. what we call it in the United States? Yeah. We call it the blob. 
Yeah. It's the foreign policy blob. Well, I, I think the way Scott Morrison uses this term uh, and it's become sort of coalition speak uh, at the moment, it, it's, it's really just a derisive way of trying to marginalise scrutiny from the press gallery and to suggest that any any kind of um, you know story that comes up about dysfunction, malfeasance, incompetence, and there have been all of these things in the federal government of, of late, um, that these are just preoccupations of a few people in the Canberra bubble. Uh, it, it is very Trumpist. It is just like saying drain the swamp. I mean, it's a different way of saying the same thing. Washington is crook. Canberra's crook. That's the uh, the subtext of that. And of course, uh, I think uh, Australians are, uh, you know, they can, if it is a bubble, it's transparent and they can see straight through that. Uh, and we see that in, uh, in the polls. Do, do Australians care about foreign policy? I think Australians do care about foreign policy, but they, um, they and, and I think they increasingly care about it, funnily enough, because as we were discussing earlier, there's, there's more information around now about it. Um, someone was telling me before that uh, their kids, I think it was, were you telling me this year, um, that uh, your kids actually understand about Donald Trump? I mean, the the internet and the, the you know the sort of the way social media works allows information to flow around of course it allows false information to flow around as well but there is access now that we all have to things that we didn't have and so i think what we see that there is a latent interest there and that uh, people are prepared to uh, engage with uh, these matters um, and so obviously it's a um, that there's potential there to do good and to do harm but when, when you see those lists of um, issues that uh, voters care about, uh, foreign policy is an awful long way down the, uh, the list normally. I think foreign policy is down that list because it's largely been an abstract. You know, when you compare it to uh, do you compare about, do you care about, um, uh, you know, energy prices, uh, do you care about, um, you know, wages not growing? You know, these are, these are very sort of practical things that, voters will always place high on the list. Same with education and health because, you know, people have kids in school or, you know, uh, ageing parents or they're ageing themselves. The health system's very important. All these things are under under pressure. Public transport, uh, you know, crowding in cities, all these things are important material concerns in people's lives. Um, whereas when you talk about foreign policy, people think about um, politicians talking in sort of non-conflictual language uh, making generalisations and, and you know talking in the you know using terms like shared values and you know I mean look it's been practice for example for uh, U.S. presidents to be in the region and to say that they've got no closer friend in the region than Japan and then to come south to Australia and say they've got no closer region and no closer friend in the region than Australia um, and uh, you know but both those things can be right that's why politicians use that exact phrase. We well, have no closer right. friend doesn't mean you are our closest friend. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's a very... It's a, yeah, well, that's, see, well <clears throat> you see, that, that just doesn't pass the sophistry test. I mean, that's, the, that's perhaps why people uh, you know, turn off at that point because they, they hear that in terms of you know, the sort of meaning in the street rather. Than, I mean, you're right. I mean, you could, you could argue in a lawyerly way that uh, both of those statements work but most people think if you told your friend that you know I've got no closer friend than you you know that that means you're their best friend that's the way it works so anyway look that that's just a, it's a small issue but I think it's um, emblematic of of how foreign policy you know is transacted in the public space 
as much as we understand it. And so people, you know, figure there aren't big changes really. Uh, they're not immediate changes that affect their lives. I mean, obviously, for example, there are big forces uh, changing our foreign policy environment. Australia's international uh, uh, outlook is, um, is, you know, it's very, very... Um, Fluid at the moment, of course, with the rise of China and with the demise in, in of, of even order in the US at the moment. But, you know, as much about the decline of the US and, of course, we see what's going on in Britain. And, you know, there's, there's, there's change going on. And so it's a very difficult world in which to, uh, I, I guess, feel settled. And so foreign policy matters very much in that sense. But if you ask people to list the issues that, you know, they're going to be voting on in this election... It's not going to be foreign policy. But maybe we need to reframe what foreign policy is. Yeah. Because if we think about what things people actually care about, the security, security of their families, and the economic well-being, you know, and, and security and stability associated with that, both of those issues are fundamentally shaped by foreign policy, especially in a country like Australia, which even though we might talk about being a middle power or, you know, being a top 20 or top 13 economy, it's still fundamentally dependent on international markets, especially, especially the markets in, in, Australia, uh, in Asia, um, and obviously on alliances. Um, but, but, but no one's proposing so on either a, side to change that. That's, that's why yeah, it doesn't become... But then we are in a period now, I actually find it quite an exciting period. It's fantastic that the US has instability because now is an opportunity for countries like Australia to step it up. And we've actually seen that with some of the European countries with the exception of the UK. What happens when they can no longer rely on, on the US to, you know, to really speak up for the rule of law internationally? What happens? Well, you know, then you start to see actually these countries focusing much more on the issues and actually forming new types of alliances. So it's a fascinating time to study international yeah. relations. It's also an opportunity for new ideas and for recrafting Australian foreign policy in a way that, to use your words today, is not as derivative as in the past. I'm an outsider, and so I certainly can't speak as any sort of expert on Australian foreign policy. Uh, but one of my colleagues at Texas A&M University has penned a book called Chinese Economic Statecraft. And one of the case studies is actually on Australia and, and how even though uh, Australians may think of foreign policy as very low, and they do care about things such as the ghost tax, right? That uh, the ghost tax in, in essence is kind of a foreign policy move. Uh, the, the recent uh, barring of Australian coal to certain Chinese ports, uh, that's going to hit somebody in their wallet, and that's a foreign policy issue. Um, how dependent are Australian universities on foreign students? Right? Um, so I think quickly a lot of things that Australians are going to really care about or you know, sort of squawk in pain when things change um, are, are fundamentally about uh, foreign policy choices and foreign policy framing. That's absolutely right. I think all of, I agree with all of those things, but in a sense there's no, um, there's no significant policy contest in Australia between the two hemispheres over those issues. I mean, there are some subtle differences in language, but you know, we, broadly speaking, we have you know that um, that kind of blanket of bipartisanship, as it's been described, and that does really sort of, I think, depress any great interest or suppress, I should probably say, suppress any great passionate engagement with foreign policy as a domestic vote changer in Australia. What about defence procurement? Does that 
Differ between oh, the well, parties? defence procurement is used pretty shamelessly <laughs> in that <laughs> regard. I mean, uh, what are we spending, $50 billion to save Christopher Pine's seat? Now he's going anyway. Um, <laughs> There, 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 there was a lot of disquiet about the uh, the submarine contract, the future submarine contract, and you know, putting all that uh, investment into South Australia. And there was a suspicion on, uh, on you know, outside the coalition, I guess, that um, that there were political, domestic political uh, considerations associated with that. And indeed, there are in terms of who we even acquire, you know, who Australia even contracts with for the provision of these sorts of things. So yeah, they, these are potentially very political and potentially quite partisan and there there is there is some noise around those things that's true um, but if you're the government you're always on the upside of those discussions because you're the one who's got the wallet you know, it's not, not your money but that doesn't matter now Valerie one thing you are expert in is uh, the United States so um, before we leave the panel what does foreign policy analysis tell us about the United States now <laughs> Someone um, would have asked you that from the audience anyway, so I'm I thought sure I'd get You have to answer this in 140 characters or whatever <laughs> whatever Twitter's <coughs> limit is well, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's um, how foreign we'll, policy we'll, we'll is transacted. We'll, well, we'll go back to that. <laughs> well, I think one of the things is, is uh, if, we, if we look at the history of international relations, there was a time um, early in the 20th century when we had a dominant sort of approach called the great man theory, right? That uh, the great leaders of the world shaped the, the forces of the world. And, and of course, the Cold War that went away almost completely, where people were like, who cares what Eisenhower's personality is like? That doesn't matter in what the United States does. Oh boy, are we back to thinking that the great man theory of politics is extremely relevant. And I think it's not just Trump. It's Duterte, it's Maduro, it's uh, Bolsonaro. I mean, we have a, a variety of strongman leaders. And I think um, not just students and scholars, but I think laypersons are now very, very interested in the personal characteristics of leaders and what they're bringing to the table and, uh, and so forth. So I, I think that foreign policy analysis is really poised to make a very good contribution in this modern age of neo-great man-ism. So, so you, 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 foreign policy analysis can tell us, do you think, whether uh, Donald Trump is a harbinger of things to come or or an or an outlier. I mean, I mean that sort of reasonably seriously. Um, you know, as an as an academic discipline, can foreign policy analysis uh, help us understand that, rather than just helping us understand Donald Trump? Well, I'm certainly not going to be in the business of predicting the 2020 election, to be perfectly honest with you. Absolutely not. But I I think what foreign policy analysis can do is speak to the issue of um, what kinds of individuals are likely to be elected. Uh, and we certainly have had a number of studies uh, in foreign policy analysis that talks about that, not so much in terms of ideology, but also in terms of personal characteristics, in terms of culture. What do Americans look for? Let me give you a fair instance, okay? Um, some of you may have tuned in to the debates between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump um, during the lead up to the election. Um, as a foreign policy analyst, there was no more telling issue than when Donald Trump would walk around the stage behind Hillary Clinton 
And when, of course, he's uh, well over six feet tall, and she's actually a fairly short um, woman, I mean, there were all sorts of very fascinating things, I think, that came out um, which uh, led me to believe that the, the election was going to be much closer, I think, than many people uh, did. So I think uh, insights from political psychology, from neuroscience, uh, from cognitivism, uh, uh, I think would actually uh, begin to speak to the issue of uh, what kind of leaders arise at a particular time. They seem to arise to match you know, the mood of the, of the country. Yeah, what, what do you think of that? Uh, that that the, the the sort of gendered aspect of that is really important. I think every Australians watching those debates watched Donald Trump, you know, essentially kind of menacing Hillary Clinton through a lot of those debates, and it was obvious in everything he said as well. But just the the the, the physical body language there was startling. Mm. Well, we might say um, from a gender and international relations perspective, the performance of gender was very salient uh, and picks up on a lot of the tensions in our societies around gender relations, and particularly in the US, where you might have seen in the analysis of the election by Pew showed that, um, you know, obviously majority of white men supporting Trump, majority of white women, um, African-American women, the hot, you know, the strongest group for Hillary Clinton. Um, in, in particular, that those, those groups that really switched to Trump were, were those communities which have seen, which are not the poorest. They're not the poor white men that people talk a lot about in the UK with respect to Brexit. But they are the communities in which white men have actually not been able to sustain the same level of entitlements and cannot, that cannot be assured for the next generation. So there is a kind of a gendered racialized dynamic underlying the, you know, which kind of leaders do we seek to, to support? Through whose identity do we seek security? And why is it that we seek security through these kind of strong man type leaders? And we could ask the same question in Australia, actually, where we have had really significant and highly, uh, uh, highly credible uh, women in our foreign policy uh, machinery, but have failed to sustain female leaders in our political parties. Um, and this suggests to me a, a huge gender gap when it comes to aligning domestic politics and foreign policy. In fact, um, something that I thought was very interesting that was discussed today is that it is the bipartisanship of Australian foreign policy that allows these women to come to these positions. Um, I thought that was a very interesting insight. I'm going to consider well, it in I, the American perspective. It, it it's is, a hypothesis. It, it, it's, it's a <laughs> hypothesis, but it's one that I can uh, speak with some authority on in terms of some first-hand uh, testimony from, from liberals, and that was that the... The the, uh, the word about Julie Bishop when the Liberal leadership, the leadership of the government was up for grabs, the word about Julie Bishop was that she was just doing foreign policy, she was just doing foreign affairs, uh, that's largely bipartisan, therefore she hasn't really got what it takes. So this is probably one of our most successful, certainly our most renowned uh, uh, foreign ministers for some time, and... Uh, certainly one of the, the best that that party's produced. Uh, but And she's been deputy leader for, you know, 11 of her 22 years or whatever it was in, in the parliament. But when it came time to choose a leader, they were going to go to someone completely untried 
uh, in favour in, in favour of her, and the argument was, well, foreign policy is, as I say, it's not a not an area of hot political contest. Therefore, she hasn't proven herself. I thought that was a pretty outrageous argument, but there it was. Hmm. Okay, now I want to throw this open to the uh, to the audience, uh, but just before I. I ask for questions. We haven't had uh, much discussion about the teaching of, uh, of uh, foreign policy, and uh, Dr. Benjamin Day is an associate lecturer in the Department of International Relations at the Coral Bell School, uh, is here with us. So, Ben, I'm just going to ask you if you wouldn't mind saying something about the, uh, the, the uh, state of foreign policy teaching in Australia. Are, are students interested uh, in it, um, you know, how, how healthy is the, uh, uh, is the environment? Um, yeah, thanks very much, Alan. Um, we had a really interesting discussion about this today as well, and some of the uh, institutional uh, incentives that uh, come to bear uh, on teaching of, of Australian foreign policies, for example. So um, the, the teaching of sort of foreign policy analysis as a subdiscipline is not very entrenched in Australia, uh, much like the subdiscipline itself. But you do see a situation where many of uh, Australia's leading universities do teach courses in Australian foreign policy. And we're discussing today um, some of, I guess, the pressures that are on that. What is it that, uh, that these courses are for? Are they primarily uh, focused on equipping students uh, to go into service in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, for example? Or should they uh, equip students with sort of conceptual tools or, or mental, mental frameworks to be able to understand what's going in the, on in the world and how do we balance these things? So. Um, it struck me as, as quite interesting too that there is pressure, I think, on Australian on, on the teaching of Australian foreign policy. Uh, it's not uh, a sort of a guarantee, despite uh, it seemingly being a moment in Australian history where these things are really uh, quite central. Uh, and so, I think we do need to make an effort as a as a community to make sure uh, the teaching of Australian foreign policy and also uh, foreign policy analysis is reinvigorated. Uh, and we discussed some, uh, some techniques to do that today as well. Yeah, thanks. All right, now questions from the floor. I think we've got one right next to you. Okay, I'm Diane Stone. I'm at the um, University of Canberra, the University of Warwick and the Central European University, so constantly jet-lagged. Um, uh, I was interested in the comments of the panel about um, the engagement or the interest of the public in foreign policy, but I'd be interested to hear your reflections on the private sources of foreign policy. And this was sparked by Michael's quip about think tanks, but given you have a think tank background of your own, um, and in particular the Lowy Institute's very central role um, at the time of Australia's presidency of the G20. You know, to what extent do think tanks have a role in foreign policy analysis? Um, Valerie, you're here on exchange. Um, so it made me think about programs like Fulbright and the kind of impact that they have probably over the long term uh, in shaping opinion, um, views, um, 
that are very hard to pin down but are ne nevertheless quite valuable. So Fulbright is a very uh, well-known, long-standing program, but in the Australian context, there are bodies like the Australian American Leadership Forum, which is very elite and very exclusive but is quite important for consensus formation. And Mark, I'm not going to leave you out, um, because you're a journalist, I'm thinking also that journalists... Recovering. Are... Recovering, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, journalists can also play quite an important role. And um, thinking here of the International Crisis Group and the very uh, key role that journalists have at the front line of whatever conflict it might be in terms of reporting. So there's a very clear, strong role that uh, the media and, and individual journalists can play. Uh, here. And then Jackie, um, you've written in your own research work on social movements and in particular um, feminist and women's uh, movements and I'm wondering about your thoughts about the way in which they are effective in promoting norms and new agendas in foreign policy analysis and foreign policy as a practice. I'm, ha I'm happy to address the, uh, the, the, the... Well, when I say I'm happy to address the question about the role of journalists in conflict situations, I hasten to add I've not been a war correspondent myself, so um, I haven't had a lot of experience in, um, you know, those sorts of zones. Uh, having, I had, did go to Afghanistan a few times and um, during the, uh, the conflict when we were, you know, very heavily engaged there. Um, but... Um, as a general observation, obviously, uh, you know, getting information out, uh, having people understand what's going on is utterly crucial to uh, the, the, you know, the discharge of policy and to the legitimacy of the actions of any state. Um, and of course, that's always a real problem, uh, you know, in war situations because security is also such a factor. And it's well known in uh, in Australian media that uh, in conflict situations. Um, including in Afghanistan when I was there, um, you get more information out of just about anyone else than you do out of Australian defence forces and defence media. Uh, you could find out what was going on from Canadians, from the Brits, from the Americans. The Australians wouldn't tell you. Um, and uh, this is, this is uh, you know, a long complaint of uh, tendency that we have where we've got this... Uh, um, you know, veil of secrecy about some of the most basic things. And as journalists, we always, you know, wonder about that because public support for these campaigns relies on there being uh, some reasonable level of transparency about what's being done in our name. And uh, um, just the sheer nervousness bordering on paranoia about journalists in those places is uh, from Australian Defence Force officials is it's really quite staggering and very frustrating and I don't think it reflects well on them. Um, oh absolutely you're right uh, non-state actors within the society play a crucial role. Uh, I've been especially impressed for example by um, uh, civil society organizing within Australia on the issues of women peace and security. I think without that type of uh, political pressure um, I don't think um, the WPS agenda would have advanced as far as it has uh, in Australia. I think there's all sorts of non-state actors, uh, everything from organized groups to even influential individuals. Uh, certainly a, a large percentage of the American population pays very close attention to what the Pope is, is saying uh, about international issues about issues such as uh, refugees and migration and development and so forth. 
Uh, and so these non-state actors need not even be within your own border, right? But they can be epistemic communities, right? Communities of scientists who've reached a consensus on climate change. And uh, so the wide variety, I think, of non-state actors is uh, both a challenge and a wonderful opportunity for foreign policy analysts to, to track. How do you explain um, the fall of the Berlin Wall if you don't look at non-state actors in places like Hungary? Uh, you can't. So yes, it's part and parcel, I think, of what foreign policy analysis looks at. I might just leave off from where Valerie said, because um, people talked about how they started in the field of foreign policy analysis, and, and Valerie talked about the foreign policy analysis was, was really significant, um, because many scholars were, did actually have an indication about uh, the fall of communism and what was happening inside those countries and inside the Soviet Union, unlike our international relations colleagues. Um, and I think for, for me, I actually did my PhD on Czechoslovakia and the collapse of communism. And, and this is where a kind of a feminist perspective comes together with foreign policy analysis, which is to say, if you want to understand change and where change is coming from, you better be focused on what's happening in those societies and those underlying dynamics. And, and this is where foreign policy is focused. So social movements, and I mean, I, I really liked what Alan Bream said today when he said foreign policy is actually about people's connections to the world. So we should stop thinking about foreign policy as something that is only conducted by diplomats authorised by our governments. Foreign policy is actually involving increasingly large parts of our entire society. Uh, and if we look at the trends and patterns over time and the shifts, we could also see that being um, driven by key actors and social movements play a really significant part. So, um, you know, just to, just to think about one major social actor, um, you know, the anti-nuclear movement worldwide and think about the ways in which they've gone about changing the foreign policies of many countries in order to get the nuclear test ban treaty. And let's see what happens in Australia. And let's see if these issues can actually become part of the political competition uh, in our domestic politics. But certainly what I've seen working in the field of women, peace and security, and why I think that's an important field to be in, is because it's one of those spaces worldwide right now where you do have an opportunity as academics to work together with policymakers and advocates who are working in NGOs and social movements and in conflict-affected countries right at the coal face to try to actually change foreign policies and international security policies at the same time. So I'm, I'm, I'm a real strong advocate of really rethinking how we, how we see foreign policy and who are the key foreign policy actors. Um, Professor Mark Beeson from the University of Western Australia uh, entered a skeptical note into our discussions uh, earlier in the, in the day about how important Australian foreign policy really was. Now, this may not have been the question you were about to ask, uh, Mark, but uh, I'd like you to, um, uh, to comment on that uh, as well. It's connected. So I've got an observation first. I'm really taken with this uh, analogies with superheroes. So Australia <laughs> is clearly Jimmy Olsen's perennially adolescent sidekick. Uh -huh. uh, uh, sorry, Superman's perennially <laughs> adolescent sidekick, so we're Jimmy Olsen. But we could be, this is a question for Jackie eventually, we could be, we could be Wonder Woman. And the question is, why aren't we? And uh, so this gets to the, the sort of thing that Alan was talking about, because on the one hand, mm. uh, there's an argument to say, for, to, to, to say that 
the strain is a middle power, it's kind of constrained, it's, uh, it's not a big power, it can't do certain things. But as you so rightly pointed out, and I couldn't agree more, we are at a particular moment in history of flux, uncertainty, uh, lack of uh, positive leadership from some of the people you might expect to be providing it at this particular moment, particularly the United States. So here is the proverbial moment when middle powers could step up, could band together, could put different ideas on the international agenda. Why aren't they, is my question. Why aren't we becoming you know, a new force for independent thinking about foreign policy and new ideas about foreign policy when we jolly well could be? All right, Mark, why don't you start with that? And then I'll go to Well, I'm, I'm just going to give some sort of boring instrumentalist answer in a way because it, uh, I think you know, I, would, I would say the answer to that question is that there's no votes in it. There's no, no votes in it. Um, you know, th that's how transactional our politics is at the moment. And I think, uh, you know, we we have a foreign policy which, as I said before, is, you know, largely um, largely agreed or at least our sort of, you know, official stances are. And um, there, are, there are differences between the two sides. And I think those differences uh, can and possibly will emerge assuming there are a change of government. Um, and I think that's important to note that rather than just you know, pretend it's not the case. But, but in terms of the, um, the sort of political discussion in this country, I don't think there's any great impetus to, um, you know, to be sort of engaging in that kind of... What, what some voters might regard as either, you know, at worst sort of adventurism and at best probably irrelevant to, to them. And, and political parties just... They're, they're risk averse, you know, they just don't do these kinds of things. So I think there's some prospect that a future Labor government will um, have a foreign policy which is more progressive and more relevant to the world as it is changing than the, uh, than the current policy settings we have. Um, and there are some signs even in the utterances that Labor has made uh, in that regard, but um, we, we're talking evolution rather than revolution. Jackie, what's your answer? To yeah, um, I'm, I haven't seen the latest Dr. Marvel movie, but I'm wondering if we might aspire to be a Dr. Marvel because my sons say that's terrific and it's more impressive than Wonder Woman. But in any case, that's food for thought. Um, I mean, I tend to think kind of long-term and normatively, and if, if, if we say that foreign policy is what we make of it then it's, well, if we, you know, what, how can we activate our public, our students, because we are educators, and um, our social movements to actually um, really, uh, you know, really try to shape our foreign policy so in new ways. Again next week. That's good yeah, that's exactly right. And the younger generation kind of gets it. And we're starting to see that activism. And, and I, my question to us is more like, okay, we might be disappointed um, with the lack of foreign policy debate, um, but what is our role? What can we do to activate um, those young people? I mean, a number of people talked about our poor high school curriculum. Well, actually, I've got a son doing year 11 global politics. He chose it over history because it's a much more interesting curriculum. And they're actively talking about nuclear negotiations. And they were talking about gender, too, because they were very interested looking at the Iran nuclear talks at the gendered makeup of the negotiation teams. And then they were applying some of that to the Trump 
Jinping Kim. And I well, thought, he probably actually, already knows more about it than Trump does. Well, yeah. exactly. Um, so I, I think there's such potential. And I really do think our education institutions have a real role here. And I'd just like to put a plug in for my own university, which is doing something really transformative in this space. So my dean decided, she came in, she was a new dean, and this is also about the power of women's leadership. She said, right, right be a Bachelor of Arts, the enrolments are going down, we, we're going we're gonna to turn that around. She said every single student who comes to Monash University to do a Bachelor of Arts is going to go on a global immersion experience. They will go to China, they will go to India, they will go to Indonesia, and they will go to Italy if that's what they like. And they will go and engage in a project that's related to key issues for Australia, environmental sustainability, human security, and they will, and, and they, by the way, Australian Colombo Plan has supported it. Uh, Australian embassies are excited. Philanthropists from China and India are over the moon because this is Australian education en masse in the world. So, I mean, it's just one example, but it is actually foreign policy, and there's so much more that we can do in that space. And, I'm, like, I feel really proud to be an Australian in the world, and I really believe we just need to get our message a lot clearer. Um, I know I talked to some people in foreign affairs today, and they said, oh, we're so sick of the Canadians. They're always, like, <laughs> you know, they're one-upping us, and we actually, on the ground in our aid policy, we do so much more, for example, for women's empowerment, but we don't have a really good brand. We don't have a clear message. So I, I think, you know, this, this, you know, again, like, um, this is something that we as, as scholars and researchers and advocates, you know, we can actually help with. Um, and we can try to start to align some of these aspirations of our students and our citizens who are actively engaged in the world. Probably we are one of the most travelled countries in the world. Mm. So how can we align that? With you know, with that, uh, you know, with th with that foreign policy establishment, I want to just be a bit um, defensive of our contemporary uh, policymakers, uh, uh, Mark. On a, um, there, there's a lot of uh, sort of '90s nostalgia around at the moment. Now, I was I was there in the in the '90s. I liked the '90s, <coughs> but the '90s are no longer available to us. It was possible for Australia to do things at that time, the Cambodia peace uh, um, pro uh, process, the formation of APEC, the Chemical Weapons Convention, because things were happening in the, at the global level, which made it possible for a country like, like us to, uh, to take those steps. Now, I personally believe that Australian foreign policy could be more creative and, uh, and active than it is, but, uh, but it's going to be, have to be creative and active in a different way from the past. So, yes, sorry, there's another question here and then I'll go to you, Bob. Um, hello, my name is Susan Hutchinson. I'm a PhD student uh, at the Coral Bell School. Um, I want to respond to that and, and see if we can get some more discussion about that point because Australia is still, um, we don't have to go back to the 90s to think about potentially exciting things that Australia has done. Australia was um, crucial in negotiating, for example, the Arms Trade Treaty, um, which, which was a mere years ago, um, but Australian foreign policy is already structured in a way that really undermines the, the basis of, of, of that treaty. Um, 
and we're seeing um, domestically um, sets of policies that really kind of contradict some of those uh, some of those great things that are being done in even the most recent history. Um, so I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to hear people's uh, the panel's views about um, the questions around um, increasing defence exports, lack of transparency around. Um, uh, around defence exports and what that means. You know, Australia was a key negotiator of the arms trade treaty, um, but there's a serious, again, lack of transparency around um, um, defence um, data on, on what's available. And we it looks highly likely that we are selling arms to Saudi Arabia that are being used in the war in Yemen. Um, so, I mean, and some of these are really fundamental things that are supposed to go to the very core of Australian foreign policy as part of a rules-based global order that didn't, that weren't done in the 90s. They're, you know, we're talking about a couple of years ago that Julie Bishop took as the kind of the forefront of her Security Council presidency. Obviously, Julie Bishop isn't foreign minister and he's not about to not be in parliament, but you know, there's, we don't have to go that far back to be able to think around some of these questions. Yeah, good point. Uh, anyone on the panel want to respond on that? Well, can I maybe, maybe just say this, I mean, this, um, a friend from Sweden, a, a professor in Sweden sent me this week, Australia is the top five importer of arms. And she said, what, what is that? You know, like, how could that be? And I do think this kind of alignment between our defence policy and our foreign policy is really significant and that this is where values become really important in studying foreign policy. Um, so, I mean, at present we haven't had the politicisation of defence spending, but, um, you know, I think that's an open door because obviously we have rising defence spending and that has huge implications for other areas in our society. Um, and I think actually it is the role of academics and researchers to, to kind of bring that critical information to the public debate. Um, and I, you know, I, 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 like Susan, I would like to see that debate happen and be led by foreign policy scholars. Well, look, I think that's, that's a valid point, but, but I would say that we can't have it both ways. We can't, on, on the one hand, um, complain that we do have a sort of a derivative foreign policy and derivative defence policy that is designed merely to piggyback on, you know, great powers to, to protect us and at the same time complain that we are in fact investing in our own defence forces. If we're looking for any level of, of self-sufficiency and, 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 and any sort of serious level of defence capability, then we have to invest in it and we're, you know, so I, I, I think that's one of the reasons why that doesn't become, um, you know, a massive, uh, you know, um, political story because I think most Australians would say we need to have uh, a relatively high level of defence capability. But isn't that different from saying you have to sell arms to Saudi Arabia? Well, I was talking more about the importing. Uh, I, I selling arms to Saudi Arabia is an entirely different question right. and I suspect we probably agree on that, as, mm. as, as most civilised people do. But we hardly ever see a public debate on any of those matters about the trade-offs and what a self, more self-reliant defence and foreign policy mm. would look like. And in countries like Sweden, you do actually have it because obviously you do have a country that has um, you know, a, 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 a neutral policy and they do have a defence industry. They also have a feminist foreign policy. So they have to grapple with, you know, those relationships and have that debate about that. And, and, uh, it seems to me kind of important for a mature democracy, 
um, to have those kinds of debates uh, and also kinds of debates that talk about well, what are the what are the uh, foreign policy options in a situation you know to 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 protect the the security of the nation yes can I just go back to this question about ambition though this question about whether we can actually get anywhere with a sort of change in foreign policy um, because I've been thinking about it since I last remarked on it and I, I think you know there is potential for Australia to have a more creative foreign policy setting than is the case at the moment and maybe that is what we're on the cusp on it does appear to be that the case that we're going to see a change of government at, at the coming election uh, and it may be that uh, as I say uh, that the new government has um, you know changes to make and I, I think uh, um, judging by some of the things that that Penny Wong has had to say about um, uh, where you know her foreign policy thinking in a range of areas, I think there's at least the potential for a new government to start looking at some of the uh, challenges in the region in a different way. It's just that questions like this, um, and we know things like very important aspects of our foreign policy, like our aid program, have essentially been not the sort of things that you know come up in election campaigns. They are the sorts of things that are done by governments that are you know, that are relatively established and and have new and interesting ideas and interesting people, um, you know, doing, uh, run, running the show. So I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to sort of give the impression of being pessimistic that we're going to sort of be constantly locked in a always the same, there's never anything to see here kind of framework. Uh, I think there's some reason for optimism and we may see the sorts of creative interventions like we've seen from... Um, uh, you know, governments in the past like was done in Cambodia and places like that. Right. We've got time, I think, for just one last question. And uh, Dr. Bob Balka. Thank you. And thank you for a very fascinating discussion. I'd like to come back to where we began, which is the question of policy studies. And I've heard uh, throughout a, a fascinating day's discussion uh, the uh, analysis of a whole range of factors rightly affecting our consideration of Australia's national interest. We've talked about diplomacy, information, military, economic power, uh, the impact of gender issues, digital economies and so on. Uh, what worries me and what I'd like to hear uh, your views on is how, as academics, you propose to teach on these issues. Uh, eclecticism uh, in, in conceptual approaches and theoretical appreciations is, is valuable. It, it can open up a whole range of ways of exploring issues. But when it actually comes to uh, delivering an education output, what is the criteria that you as academics would apply in prioritising among these various perspectives that you can take? when you are wanting to talk about Australian foreign policy and how we get there? Well, I can tell you um, that you have to broaden your idea of who our students are. That is to say that in Langley, Virginia, uh, right now in the United States of America, are um, hundreds of extremely bright people who have been trained as foreign policy analysts. Uh, so, for example, we have uh, leadership analysts. Uh, we have uh, others who do uh, subnational group analysis. 
Uh, we have others that do economic analysis. In other words, you can't have an intelligence community unless you're able to look at all of these forces because all of that information is necessary to make the kinds of estimates that your nation needs. So I, I think what you do, and what I have certainly done, is I have modeled my own classes uh, on what it would take to train my students uh, to step into those positions, and many of them have stepped into those positions. So uh, I don't view this product as necessarily a purely academic one that one uses to simply while away one's time, but this is a very focused, hands-on, practical education in how foreign policy is made and what goes into foreign policy that is of use not only in the academic community for explanations, but also in the intelligence community for national estimates. Well, that's a great point to end on. Um, thank you very much to our panel, uh, Valerie Hudson, Jackie True, uh, Mark Kenny. Uh, thanks to the ANU College of Asia and the uh, Pacific, uh, to Martin Pierce from the Crawford uh, uh, School for help with the, uh, with the audio. I hope you will join me and uh, Darren Lim on the next Australia in the World podcast. But please let's end by, uh, by uh, uh, thanking our, our panel.